Barbara Brown, Naoko Onda, Anna Rosa Lever, Nancy Gronwald. Little known names except to those who loved them and all women who disappeared while travelling solo across Australia. These are the stories of Australia's missing foreign backpackers. Primary sources for this episode include the Doe Network, the Australian Missing Persons Register, The Age, Adelaide Now, the Magistrates Court of Tasmania, The Examiner, and consideringcoldcases.wordpress.com. Hi guys, welcome back to Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those missing and murdered abroad. This is episode 33, so if you've stuck around this long, thank you. Um, So um, this week's case, I just want to kind of preface it with a little bit. I have a big spreadsheet of all the cases that I want to do, both solved and unsolved, missing and no longer missing. And I've probably got about 200 um, people on it so far. And some people I just haven't even added to it, but they're in my head. So it's a lot. So basically each week I kind of try to go to a different place um, to give you a taste of somewhere new. And eventually I obviously I'll be looping around to the same places. Um, uh, So because there's quite a few countries that have, particularly India, Jamaica, that just have a obscene number of missing tourists. So this week I could not decide which case I wanted to do. Um, I was going to go back to Australia um, or I was going to go to Spain. So I put it on Instagram and I put it as a poll and you guys voted um, and you guys said Australia, which we've already been to before. It was kind of um, a photo finish really, but I will be covering the Spain one soon. But it was funny that you chose that because the Spain was like a long form, really big one that I've been working on that I've known about for quite a while. And the Australian one that I'm doing today is actually kind of a, it'll feel a little bit different to other episodes I've done in the past because I am actually covering four different disappearances of women um, in Australia, all different states where they went missing. And the reason that I'm doing it this way is because these women literally are just a footnote um, on a missing persons website. There is probably three paragraphs for the one with the most information. So really I couldn't do them as their own episode because it would be like a five minute episode and they were just sitting on my spreadsheet and I didn't know how to go about it. So I thought I'd do them. I cover all these women together um, and make it a little bit different. I won't be touching hugely on the areas. A couple of them, we actually don't know the specific area they went missing um, as they were hitchhiking at the time. Two of them, I will go into a little bit about the area. If you've been to Australia um, or you are Australian, which is most of my listener base, um, you probably know these areas pretty well, but I'll be touching on four different states, um, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania. So um, these women, um, I just really wanted to put their names out there because I am really tapped into this stuff and I've never heard any of their names. Um, a couple of them, I thought there'd be way more to go on for the police, but as these are all cold cases and they're all kind of, at least three of them are quite old at this point. Um, one of them goes back to 1978. Uh, really no one's looking for them anymore. And I just thought it was worthwhile doing 
kind of four mini parts um, to talk about them. And you never know, you know, you, you're you or your mother or your father or something might listen and see a photo of them, look it up. Um, there's very few photos of all of these women, unfortunately, which sucks. Um, and it might trigger a memory. Um, this is all worth doing. So, um, I will not be talking about Ivan Milat um, in this episode. I did have a note to say that. I will be maybe doing him at a later stage. A lot of podcasts have covered it so well. Um, he's Australia's most notorious serial killer. Um, he always comes up when we talk about hitchhiking and things. So I guess I'll kind of touch on it in a couple of them. But my belief is that there's Australia has way more serial killers um, or lone wolves than statistics show. Um, and I kind of can't stand it when they attribute them all to Ivan Milat because that means he was everywhere all the time. He's like the boogeyman. But yeah, so and there's also a lot of Australian missing tourists um, backpacking around Australia for decades and decades. Unfortunately, I do want to stick to the point of my show, which is people who have been murdered or gone missing abroad when they're not traveling in their own country. But if you are interested in these cases, I suggest looking up a few other cases, which I'll tell you about at the end, um, Australians that have gone missing. And a couple of them have got a lot suddenly after decades of being cold have kind of been reinvigorated a little bit. So um, today I'm talking about the disappearances of Barbara Brown, um, Naoko Onda, Anna Rosa Lever and Nancy Gronwald. So the first lady that I will be looking at is Barbara Brown. Now, Barbara came from Texas in the United States. She was born on April 30th, 1955. Barbara, at the time of her disappearance, was five foot three. She was Caucasian with blue eyes, blonde hair, and from what I can tell from the one photo that's available of her, um, probably a slim build. She really kind of looks like the all-American girl. Now, Barbara really wanted to travel the world. She set off from her home in Texas in the late 1970s. I can't say when. We only know the date that she was last seen, unfortunately. But based on what they say about where she travelled before, I'm assuming probably 1977 or early 1978. Now, her aim was to backpack around New Zealand and then head over to Australia. Um, and she set off with a female friend of hers who was a Canadian girl. They had a ball, they travelled across New Zealand and then they went across to Australia Um and they went to the state of Tasmania first, which is right at the bottom. It's not connected to the mainland, but it's a state. Um, and then they went to Victoria, which is where I live. Uh, Melbourne's the capital of Victoria. There was no fuss. They were having a great time. Like many backpackers, um, Barbara met many new friends on her travels. Now, in May 1978, Barbara arrived in Sydney, um, which I'm guessing you all know Sydney, and she stayed in the suburb of Beecroft. So she was staying, she had an ex-boyfriend back home. His brother and his brother's wife were at this point living in Sydney, um, and she went and crashed with them for a little bit. Now, they knew that she was hitchhiking, um, and from the probably three paragraphs of information there is on Barbara's disappearance, um, I can gauge that they 
were pretty much begging her not to hitchhike anymore. Um, the dangers of hitchhiking go without saying. Um, it's crazy to hitchhike. I haven't seen one for a long time. Um, I don't know if people still do. I mean, you're either the psycho or the person who picks you up is the psycho. So on May 27th, 1978, Barbara left their home, um, regardless of what they had told her about hitchhiking. She was 22 years old and she was going to hitchhike up to Queensland, which is the state above New South Wales, which Sydney is the capital capital of. Um, and then from Queensland, she was going to basically hitchhike all the way across Australia, all the way to the Western Australia capital of Perth, which is such a long way. Um, she probably, I'm guessing, planned to go kind of, it's it's the outback for about four states. Um, it's just huge if you need to look at a map, but I think you all know how big Australia is. Um, and then she was going to end up in Perth. Now, May 27th, 1978, when she left the home of um, the family friends that she was staying with and waved goodbye to them, that was the last time that anyone heard from Barbara Brown. She is presumed to have been murdered and I really can't, <coughs> sorry, I really can't kind of go into an area where she would have been murdered because back in the 70s when you were travelling, you were really communicating via cards and writing letters to people. There was no text, there was no internet, and even calling home, calling to America would have cost her a fortune. So I very much doubt that she was touching base very often with people. This was not a time when you would just go online and connect with someone immediately. Um, once you were gone, you were kind of gone, and I'm sure a lot of parents really fretted about what was, you know, between each stop, what their kids were getting up to when they were traveling across the world. So, I, I mean, Barbara really could have vanished, I presume, anywhere between Sydney and Queensland. Queensland is a huge state. Um, it's a sunshine state. And she... It would have, if she wanted to hit all the main points in Queensland, she would have been there for quite a while. So what I can take away from it is that she probably would have touched base with the family friends um, in Sydney from Queensland at some point to let them know she made it there. So I presume that she went missing somewhere between Sydney and Queensland, but really no one is sure. A cold case team in 2008 was reported to be reopening many missing backpackers cases dusting them off and looking into them again, and Barbara's case was one of them. Naoko Onda. Naoko Onda was born on July 7th, 1965. She was Japanese. Um, I don't know where she came from in Japan. She was five foot three. She had black shoulder length hair, brown eyes, a medium build, olive skin, and she had a small scar on her upper lip. Now, she did go missing almost a decade after Barbara Brown, but she was 22, the same as Barbara at the time of her disappearance, but this was in 1987. Now, Naoko was a Japanese tourist visiting Australia. I really can't make sense of the documents um, and the information out there about her. It essentially implied that she used Sydney, the um, probably, I think it's still the most visited city in Australia for tourists. Um, she used Sydney as her base. And despite documents saying she was a tourist, they also stated that she had a flat in Sydney. Regardless of what the truth is, Naoko was planning a trip up to Queensland, the same as Barbara Brown when she disappeared. 
Queensland, again, is a huge state. Um, I look at a map and it's the size of probably four European countries together. So I really can't gauge, even if you say far north Queensland, that could be any number of places. Um, people go to Queensland for the sun and kind of the laid back vibe. It's kind of like Australia's Florida in many ways. <laughs> So there is no word on how Naoko made it to Queensland, but she did make it to Queensland. She is confirmed to have been last seen on June 2nd, 1987 in Queensland, which really annoys me because documents literally just state she was last seen in Queensland. And that's insane um, that they can't kind of say if it's confirmed where exactly. Documents state that Naoko did not return to her Sydney flat where her belongings and passport were, which I find really alarming um, because if you're an international tourist, you take your passport everywhere with you, especially in the 80s when that would have been her main form of documentation. So if she went on a trip to Queensland from Sydney, um, she would have taken her passport. So I've just kind of got a chill up the back of my spine when I was reading about this because I feel like something was really overlooked there. Authorities say she did not make it back from Queensland, but I just feel like she would have taken her passport with her and that was found in her Sydney flat. Now, a friend of hers in Sydney had plans with Naoko when she was due to arrive back and she sounded the alarm when Naoko did not return. So she confirms that she didn't return from Queensland. Now, documents state that Naoko was sighted again in 1988 on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, which is on kind of the southern um, coast of Queensland, where it kind of knocks up against the top of New South Wales, um, the state below it, which Sydney is the capital of. Apparently, this sighting said that it was Naoko, which I will say I do not believe that it was her. Um, and she was on the Sunshine Coast the following year hitchhiking north. Um, I don't know what to make of this, but I don't believe that that was her. Naoko has not been confirmed to have been seen since 1987, um, and she is listed as endangered missing. So for the next case, I will be taking you to an area called Kubapedi, which is in South Australia. Um, you may need to look at a map if you're interested in this. Kubapedi, which is Kuba, C-O-O-B-E-R, Pedi, new word, P-E-D-Y. Um, I'll be taking you there for the disappearance of one woman who actually, by researching her and by pure luck, I sadly came across a bunch of other cases I have never heard of. Um, crazy things go out and go on out in Kubapedia, I think. I have never been there. I know a lot of people who have. It's kind of a stopover on the way up into the outback of Nor the Northern Territory, um, up to Alice Springs, things like that in the Red Centre, or down to Adelaide if you're going the other direction. So, when I talk about the disappearance of Anna Rosa Lever, I just want to give a quick shout out at the start to Reddit user Jess Down the Drain. She actually did a better write-up on the disappearance of Anna Rosa Lever than the actual missing persons registers that are out there for people to be looking for these people. So that's kind of what I come up against time and time again. Um, I think that's why community kind of activism or armchair detectives are not a bad thing. Um, and she cited all her sources, so I love her. 
Now, just a little bit about Kubapedi. Kubapedi, it's a remote mining town and it's in the northern part of the state of South Australia. So for Naoko and Barbara, we were over on the east coast, um, Sydney and all the kind of parts of Australia that are the most inhabited. I think Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane are like 80% of the population or something. Um, so we're going into, we're going west to the next state that borders them kind of in the middle on the southern part, which is South Australia. Um, now, Coobapedi is in South Australia. It's about 846 kilometres or over 500 miles north of the capital, the state capital of Adelaide, which you may know about. Now, as I said, Coobapedi is a remote mining town and it is famed for opal mining. It has been for over a century and a lot of the world's most incredible opals are mined in Coobapedi. Daily coaches travel through the town um, from Adelaide and from Alice Springs and kind of um, backpacker hotspots that kind of go up the Stewart Highway, which Coobapedi is located on the Stewart Highway, which pretty much runs right up the centre of Australia. It is extremely remote. Um, if you know anything about the case of Peter Falconio, which I probably won't be covering at this point, um, it's one of my pet cases, but it's just too many people have covered it. Um, the His murder um, and the abduction of his girlfriend happened in Adelaide up in northern the Northern Territory part um, on the Stewart Highway. It's extremely remote and dangerous out those parts. Um, some scary and amazing um, local wildlife and some, in my opinion, some pretty crazy people. So its location on the Stewart Highway makes Coobapedi a thoroughfare for backpackers heading up, as I said, to the Northern Territory or coming the other way down to Adelaide. It's also the driest place in Australia with next to no rainfall each year and absolutely scorching heat. Now, if you know anything about Coobapedi, you will know that locals, since it was established in 1915, I believe, locals could not deal with the heat. Summers are over 40 degrees Celsius, um, like 110 Fahrenheit, and it's out of control. So, all the residences in Coobapedia are under the ground. They're called dugouts. Um, they're essentially caves that are carved. They're quite incredible. It's the only reason I would want to go to Coobapedia to stay in one. So they live under the ground to stay cool, but above the ground are kind of the very few businesses and things in Coobapedia. And they have air conditioning on pretty much 24-7 all year. Now, in the 2016 census, there were 1,762 residents of Coobapedi. It is a very small town, and unless you're mining, there's really little reason to go there. You're not retiring there, that's for sure. Aboriginal Australians make up about 17% of the population of Coobapedi, and Aboriginal culture is very prominent in this area. Um, in fact, its name, I don't have it here, but Coobapedi, um, actually, I think it's watering hole or um, something like that, um, that it translates to like a lot of these places. Um, their names are um, in Aboriginal dialects. So according to southaustralia.com, this is their little write-up about Coobapedi, which in my... <laughs> 
my kind of takeaway from it is that they're really putting a twist on it, but I'm a copywriter, so I get it. Quote, unearth an underground world beneath the dry red dirt of the outback. Journey to South Australia's desert mi- underground mining settlement of Coobapedi, Australia's opal capital. The backdrop to many movies, Coobapedi is famous for its sun-baked lunar landscape, fascinating history and quirky lifestyle, unquote. So that is all true, but um, I think a lot of shady shit goes on in Coobapedi. Um, I think I get a little bit of a Hills Have Eyes vibe going on in these parts, um, and I don't think I'm the only person who thinks that. So from 1916 in Coobapedi, opals have been mined heavily in this area, and it was so intense that by 1999, there were more than 250,000 mine shaft entrances in the area, um, and a law that basically said that they were no longer doing large-scale mining because there's so many open mines that are incredibly dangerous if you're venturing off the main road. And in Coobapedia, there isn't much more than a main street. Funny fact about them, I found out that they have a golf course and <laughs> they play at night and the balls are glowing balls because it's too hot during the day. So there's also no grass on it um, because of the heat out there. And golfers take a small piece of turf around to use for teeing off, which I loved. Now, visitor attractions in Coobapedi are few and far between. There's the mines. You can do tours, which is one of the main reasons that people stop off here, especially overseas backpackers. Um, There is a graveyard. There are underground churches, which are actually really incredible. Um, And there's a lot of kind of um, underground motels and hostels available because backpackers are always stopping off through here. So tourism is probably a main factor in Coobapedi besides mining. Now, with all that being said about Coobapedi, I'm going to get into the main case that I had on the list, which actually kind of birthed a bunch of other cases I had never even heard of. Um, they never come up on anything I've ever read. And it was just thanks to Reddit and the people writing on the thread um, of Anna Rosa's case that I even came across these. So Anna Rosa Lever, she was an Italian backpacker. I don't know where she was from in Italy. I wish I knew. Um Again, with Barbara and Noriko's case, just like that, there's very little information about her disappearance and I had never heard of it, which is crazy, especially if you're Australian and you know how much of a big deal the disappearance of Peter Falconio was. Um, I find it crazy that everyone knows that case um, because I guess it's so sensational, the details of it, but who the fuck has heard of Anna Rosa Lever? Um, And she was on her own and I don't know. I think she was an honest person, unlike some of the people, I think, in the Peter Falconio case. So at the time of backpacking around Australia, Anna Rosa, she was 30 years old. She was Italian. She was Caucasian. She had dark hair, brown eyes and an olive complexion. She's very kind of Romanesque. Um, Sadly, on the Charlie Project and the Doe Network, she's listed as heavy build, which if you look at pictures of her, um, that makes me one of those people on my 500 pound life or whatever, because she's slim as hell. So fuck you. Now, Anna was an experienced traveler. Um, She was confident traveling solo. She'd done it before. She was a reliable person. She checked in with her friends and family back home and she was a devoted Jehovah's Witness, which are a very strict kind of sect of, I guess, Christianity. Um, 
don't ask me about religion. Um, so Anna had been backpacking around Australia. I don't know any details of that, but she had been in the city of Adelaide before making her way to Coober Pedy. Now, she arrived into Coober Pedy by bus on November 27th, 1991. She arrived late at night. She was booked into a hotel, one of the underground ones that I told you about. Um, the buses are daily, so you can pretty much get in and out of Coober Pedy every day if you want to. Um, she planned to spend that night um, and the full next day um, in Coober Pedy before returning to Adelaide by bus the following night. So she was really only staying for one full day. Um, it's about, you know, um, what was it? 500 miles from Adelaide. So she was doing a big long bus trip to essentially go out and see the opal mines, um, and then returning back to Adelaide. Now I had, I had put it here. Um, and I do just want to say it, I'd put it further down. Coobapedi, I just wanted to say comes from the Aborigine term, meaning white man's hole or white fella burrow, because nearly all the houses are under the ground. Um, so I just wanted to correct myself there. Now, Anna spent that night of November 27th, 1991 in her hotel. She got in late, she went to bed, she got up the next day. Now, she was last seen alive around midday the following day, Thursday, the 28th of November, 1991. She was last seen alive walking north along Hutchinson Street um, in the centre of Coober Pedy um, around 12pm. Now, before that, in the morning, she had visited the Coober Pedy City Council office, which is essentially in 1991 where you went to book tour tickets um, or any kind of experience you wanted to have in the town. Um, so she booked tickets on a tour that was happening at 2pm that day. It says a local tour. Um, my understanding, it doesn't really specify, but I guess they just do, it goes for a few hours and they take you to an opal mine um, around the area, things like that. Um, 1991, I meant to say earlier, um, these days they probably take you to where movies were filmed because um, one of the greatest movies ever made and the best Australian movie ever made, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, has a pretty um, important plot point that takes place in Coober Pedy on their travels. They filmed it there um, where if you are familiar with the movie, Guy Pearce dresses up in drag um, and goes out trying to pick up guys, <laughs> um, which in Coober Pedy, um, it's much like the South in America. They're not really receptive to that and they end up bashing him up. Um, that is what happened in the movie in Coober Pedy. Mad Max 3 was also filmed in Coober Pretty much if you want to go to a kind of, no offence to anyone, but backward desert landscape, you film in Coober Pedy. Now, um, she was booked onto this local tour at 2pm that day. Um, and at that night at 7pm, she planned to attend a Jehovah's Witness meeting. Now, when she was at the city council offices, one of the employees had been chatting to her, found out she was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and he said that they had a meeting that night at 7pm for Jehovah's in Kubapedi. So she was thrilled because she didn't think that she would find a meeting for her um, religion in such a small town. So this employee told her where it was and that he would be going that night. That's what I understand happened. Now, in those two hours after leaving the city council office and starting her tour between 12pm and 2pm, Anna Rosa Lever vanished in broad daylight in the town of Coober Pedy. Um, there was no disturbance reported, no one heard anything and not a trace of Anna has ever been found. 
The disappearance of Anna in broad daylight led police to believe that she was either abducted or she willingly got into a vehicle with someone, um, which kind of got my brain working because as we get into it, I think this is kind of a common thing where people think that people in the country have good intentions and I believe that most of them are good people, um, probably better than city people, but there's still lunatics out there this way, um, Wolf Creek style. So in the early days of Anna's disappearance, the Cooper PD local police looked closely at one suspect. They had never named who this person was or how they were associated with them, but soon after they said that they did not believe this person was involved. Now, my speculation, and this is purely my belief, is that she didn't have enough time to um, really meet anyone or anything like that. My belief is that the suspect that they looked at was the city council employee, but no one's ever said that. There have been no other leads and they got next to no calls um, for Crime Stoppers about the disappearance of Anna Rosa. Now, they also searched many local mine shafts. As I said, there are a gazillion. Um, thinking that she wandered out of the town centre, which I really don't think she would have. Um, there's really not a lot to see out this parts. Um, and police used both Aboriginal trackers and police dogs to search the area extensively to no avail. Aboriginal trackers, um, they should use them in every case, I think, in Australia. Um, they're incredible. They can, I really don't want to do them a disservice by kind of just winging what they do, but they're essentially so in tune with the land in Australia that they can see like a tiny, like they can see a line of ants and like, I'm trying to kind of go back to my understanding, the Peter Falconio case, they were essentially able to say how long this blood, this tiny drop of blood had been on the ground based on kind of the earth around it. They are really in tune with the land. There's a movie that's Australian called The Tracker, um, which I think David Gulpalil, who is an amazing Australian Aboriginal um, actor, he, I believe he's dead, but he is always used in Australian films He's incredible. Now, as of 2016, the case of Anna Rosa Lever is still cold. It's still open, but it is cold. The police stated in 2016 that since her disappearance in 1991, they had searched 12 to 13 really big mine shafts within 500 metres of where she disappeared and nothing. And that's quite a long way out of the town centre. I really don't think she would have been walking out that far, which makes me think she was taken out even further in a vehicle. In 2016, they told the Cooper PD Times, quote, we're confident she hasn't just fallen into a nearby mine shaft. Now, Anna Rose's younger brother, Constantino, has was her biggest supporter. And I imagine even though he hasn't been vocal because it has been almost 30 years since her disappearance, um, he actually travelled to Australia not long after her disappearance in 1991 um, from Italy um, and was really vocal about getting answers for her. He says that he believes that Anna's religion played a major role in her disappearance as Jehovah's Witnesses are very trusting of each other. And if someone pulled up kind of in a car that said they were a Jehovah's Witness or maybe the person who told her there was a meeting that night, um, you know, she would have gotten in. And this was long before mobile phones or internet or anything like that. He told the Cooper PD Times, 
Quote, one of my most difficult memories I cannot come to terms with is the day the police in Cuba PD gave me Anna's belongings, her suitcase full of her things. That is a very difficult memory. I sometimes unrealistically hope that she has just gone off with somebody never to be found and I know that isn't a plausible scenario, he said. Unquote. So really that was all found through the Reddit thread I came across. She's not even listed on Australian like missing persons websites. It's insane. Um, maybe because she's not Australian, but still we need to keep her name out there. Now through researching on Reddit, I was scrolling through people's responses to this girl's really lengthy write up on Anna's case. And a bunch of people commented, this reminds me of this, or this reminds me of this case in Cooper PD. And I was blown away because these never came up in any searches I've ever done. So I found out that there was a German backpacker. Her name was Anne Newman. She went missing in Cuba Pedy in July 1992, which is 19 months after Anna Rosa Leva vanished in the same town. She was 22 years old um, and essentially her case does have a conclusion. The following year after Anne went missing while visiting Cuba Pedy, a 22-year-old Croatian immigrant, um, he was not a citizen of Australia, he was charged with her murder um, and another friend of his was charged with, quote, impeding police investigations. Now, this piece of shit, his name's Miho Christian Alavija. Um, he was found guilty in a subsequent trial of raping and German backpacker Anne Newman and disposing of her body down a Cooper mine shaft. Um, she was alive when she was thrown into the mine shaft um, and they were able to find her body and recover it. Um, he had essentially pulled over when she was walking up the main street and offered her a ride um, and he was seen doing so by people, um, but he refu- He said that he didn't have anything to do with it. Luckily, he started, like many idiots, started talking to his friends about how he had murdered her and his so-called friends told the police, thank God. He was sentenced to life in prison with a 20-year non-parole period, which is pretty standard in Australia. You'll never do full life. You'll do at the most 20 years, it sucks. Um, there are a few that are on kind of like a special list where they will never be released. Um, and they're, I think there's only a handful of them. I know most of them. Um, they're animals. Now, as recently as 2013, the most recent update on, um, this murderer of Anne Newman was that he was being deported to Croatia once he was paroled. Now, I do want to say that um, Miho Christian Alavija, the murder, murderer of German backpacker Anne Newman, was not in Cooper Pedy um, when Anna Rosa Lever, um and the following girl that I'm about to talk about, Karen Williams, disappeared, so he cannot be a suspect. He was not even in South Australia, I believe, and police have confirmed that. Um, now, Anne, she was essentially um, very much like... Anna Rosa, she was travelling alone in Cuba PD. She checked into a backpacker's hostel. Um, she arrived by bus, same as Anna, Lee, um, Anna Rosa, um, and she intended to stay two nights in Cuba PD before heading on to Port Augusta, which is on the coastline of South Australia. She was last seen having dinner in a local restaurant and did not return to her hostel room. All very similar to Anna Rosa, um, except we know that her murderer cannot be Anna Rosa's murderer. Now, Karen Williams, she 
was a local 14-year-old girl. She went missing in August 1990 in Cooper She has never been found, but police believe that she was, quote, bashed and buried half alive because she stumbled upon three men carrying out an armed robbery, unquote. Now, according to Adelaide Now, when I looked into her case a little bit, Her accused killer was actually found not guilty in a trial, which actually happened in 2016. They took a couple of decades to arrest him um, and they had extremely good evidence that he was the one who did it, including kind of people who knew firsthand because he'd told them. Um, The Adelaide Now reported um, that... Quote, Justice Stanley said he was satisfied both men had some involvement in the death of Karen Williams and the disposal of her body, but took issue with the evidence, unquote. So essentially he's just out walking around despite killing a teenage girl because there was issues with how the evidence was presented, but everyone knows that he did it. Um, now this guy, I don't think he's still in Cooper PD, um, but I believe he was in Cooper PD when Anna Rosa Lever went missing, um, because Karen Williams went missing in August 1990 um, and Anna Rosa Lever went missing um, just the following year, like, you know, 15 months later or something. Now, with Anna Rosa Lever's case, her case is a little different because she's got a substantial reward that is offered by South Australia Police. Um, it has to be solid information leading to the recovery of her body and what happened to her. Um, It is a $200,000 reward, Australian dollars, and that is a huge amount of money. I see rewards for really famous cases of a million. Anna Rose's, when I came across that, that really surprised me because that is a hefty sum to put forward. So they must want to nail this person. Um, So yes, if you have any information about the disappearance of Anna Rosa Lever, um, in Cooper Pedy in 1991, you can contact the South Australia Police or the Cooper Pedy Police. Karen Williams' case, unfortunately, we have the same as the US with double jeopardy. And because he's been found not guilty of her murder, um, her accused killer will never face justice again, even if new information comes up where he could face another trial. It's not legal so he can essentially just scream it from the rooftops that he killed her now and no one can do anything.
I hope that you enjoyed that little interlude. Um, that was some traditional Aboriginal didgeridoo music. Um, that was from Lewis Burns. He is an Aboriginal Australian artist and a master at what he does. I love listening to Aboriginal music. I find it's entrancing. Um, I love Native American music as well. Um, and I also find the bagpipes super relaxing, which is really weird. Um, someone in the comments of that video called that um, ancient dubstep, which I think is great. <laughs> um, and if you've ever seen someone playing a didgeridoo, it is a workout. It is like you have to be able to circular breathe. Um, if you watch the video of him doing that, it is hardcore. Um, so if you can play it, it's a gift. So I thought that would be a good interlude as I've dealt with a lot of places, um, particularly Cooperpedi and I'm about to go into Tasmania, which are both very important for tens of thousands of years to the Aboriginal people of Australia. So I'm going to talk about Nancy Grunwald now. Um, I do want to say straight up, most of the information about Nancy's disappearance, I have never heard of her disappearance ever. Um, I can't remember it getting any attention, but then again, I was quite young. But ever since that, I have no idea. So this was kind of amazing that I managed to find the coronial inquest report, which they conducted in 2003, um, almost a decade after the disappearance of Nancy Grunwald, a German backpacker in Tasmania. The coroner's report came from the Magistrates Court of Tasmania. Um, the coroner was Peter Henrik Wilson. And I just want to say that from the outset because we talked about coroner's inquests um, in the Stephen Cook case. Um, this inquest, I read the whole thing. It really painted a picture of a human being. It wasn't clinical. Um, I don't know if it's just the way Australian coroner's inquests read, but um, it was very, it gave me an insight into who Nancy was as well as the details of her disappearance. It's extremely detailed. Um, I came across it when I thought that I didn't have much to go on for Nancy's case and it pretty much lays out everything, um, who she is, what she was doing, every single movement, every single thing she did leading up to her disappearance. So if you're interested in this case, I suggest Googling that. Now, this case takes us to the state of Tasmania. Now, Tasmania is kind of broken off the mainland of Australia. It's on the southeast coast. It's 240 kilometres off the southeast mainland and you can fly there from my city of Melbourne. It's like a 40-minute flight to Hobart, which is the capital. Now, Tasmania is actually the 26th largest island in the world, which is crazy. It's actually probably bigger than a lot of islands you know, off the coast of Spain, things like that. You can drive across it relatively quickly. Um, it's a beautiful state. The population of Tassie and one of the main reasons that people love going there and are moving there more and more is that it's half a million people. Now, 42% of the land area of Tasmania are actually protected areas, national parks, world heritage sites. It is a glorious um, smorgasbord of beauty. And I think it's the most beautiful part of Australia. Um, it has cities, it has beaches, thousands of islands, little villages. <coughs> Sorry. Um, the famous Cradle Mountain is there. The Bay of Fires. It has amazing, amazing fresh produce, wine, really down to earth, awesome people. 
Sadly, it is the location of Australia's biggest um, mass murder to date, um, which happened in 1996. And I may cover it at some point because there were a lot of foreigners visiting this kind of tourist spot when it happened, but that was the Port Arthur Massacre, um, which happened in 96. I still remember it very well, and I still keep tabs on the case. Now, Nancy Grunwald, she was a 26-year-old German travel agent, and in 1996, she took one year's leave from her job in Germany to travel around Australia and New Zealand. I don't think jobs let you do that anymore, but my dad's job let him, when he was in his 20s, take three years off work to travel around the United Kingdom and Ireland. Um, It was a way to kind of pay back hardworking employees, something that companies don't really know anything about anymore. Now, Nancy was 168 centimetres tall. She had black hair, which I think it's listed as black, but I think it's more kind of dark brown um, and blue eyes. She was born in 1967 and was raised in the German town of Steinbergkirch. Steinbergkirch. That's in a more Irish than German, Steinbergkirch. Um, and she was a reliable and very devoted religious woman very much like Anna Rosa Lever. She was also an avid traveller and by the age of 20, she had visited 14 countries alone um, and she spoke German, English and French. So she was a very well-rounded, interesting woman and a very independent woman who had done so much on her own. Now, her parents described Nancy as a happy, open, energetic person with deep religious beliefs. They said she made friends easily and was well-liked by everyone, and she does look like a lovely woman from the pictures I've seen. Nancy was in regular contact with her parents when she was away. This was 1993, though, and back then you didn't really, as I've gone into a million times, have internet, um, texting, things like that. So you would sometimes go a month or two without contacting back home. Um, But in each new place she went to, she would touch base with them so they knew she was okay. They said she would never have willingly broken contact with them, which I believe. Nancy had actually visited Australia before, but she had not been to Tasmania um, where she ultimately vanished. So on this particular trip, She first went to New Zealand in July 1992. She went to New Zealand and backpacked all over New Zealand for about six months, during which time her parents actually flew into New Zealand um, and they went around with her to different major spots, which was the last time they would see her. Now, once they went back to Germany, Anna, um, sorry, Nancy then flew across to Tasmania, um, which I've gone into, um, the state of Tasmania. She flew into the city of Devonport, which is a major city in Tasmania, in March 1993. It was her first major place she wanted to explore in Australia. Um, she was then going to go to South Australia, maybe to Cooper Pedy, where Anna Rosa Lever went missing. Um, but Tassie was the first stop. We call it Tassie in Australia. Now, She intended on being in Australia for the next three months and then she was due to return to Germany according to the coroner's inquest on the 24th of June 1993. Now, Nancy's last contact with her parents was on the 11th of March 1993 at about 4pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Now, now I'm going to take you through the details of everything that Nancy did leading up to her disappearance almost 30 years ago. Um, The coroner's inquest laid it out incredibly, so pretty much everything from now on is from their very extensive report. 
So on the morning of Tuesday, the 9th of March, 1993, Nancy went to a bike hire service in the city of Devonport in Tasmania, and she hired a Red Road Chief Marauder Mountain bike. Now, when she rented it, she rented it for two weeks, which apparently cost $100, which 1993. Um, and then she said that she was due to return on the 22nd of March, 1993 to Devonport. She would return the bike then. Um, while she was at the bike rental service, she left her um, her bigger backpack with them, which had some personal belongings. She couldn't carry it all with her littler backpack on her back. She said that when she returned the bike, she would collect those belongings and they were fine with that. The following day, Wednesday, the 10th of March, 1993, Nancy is recorded as having stayed at the Backpackers Hostel, um, which it's actually called Backpackers Hostel in George Street, Launceston, which is a stunning, um, it's kind of the place in Tassie I really could find myself living. Um, very small city, very chilled out, very kind of healthy, fresh air, um, lots of hikes around the area. It's beautiful. Now, the following day, the 11th of March, 1993, this day, Nancy was supposed to travel from Launceston to St. Helens on a coach service. Now, you could take your bike with her as freight on the coach, um, which she was going to do. Um, and that night, she stayed the night at St. Helens Hostel in um, St. Helens, which is um, the hostel was located on Cameron Street. On the 12th of March, the following day, 1993, she departed the St. Helens Hostel sometime between 9.30am and 10.30am. She travelled south of the town on her bike and the last positive sighting of her was at approximately 11am that day and about five kilometres south of the town of Scamander. Sorry to Tasmanians if I mispronounce that. Now, the last confirmed sighting is confirmed of Nancy because she had met pre fellow tourists um, the previous night when she stayed at the St. Helens Hostel and they recognised her um, at 11 o'clock the following day cycling on her bike. Now, um, this area um, is on the Tasman Highway, which basically wraps around the state of Tasmania. Sadly, despite the fact that the last confirmed sighting of Nancy was on the 12th of March 1993, she was not reported missing until the 15th of April 1993. This is due to it being 1993. She wasn't in touch constantly with people back home um, and she was travelling on her own. So it was only when they really started to panic that she hadn't been in touch that investigations were launched. And initially, I believe from memory, it was South Australia police were notified of it because they thought maybe she had gone there early. Um, but then they referred it to Tasmania when they realised that she had never left Tassie, um, never returned the bike and was never seen after that date in March. So it had been six weeks, essentially, um, almost since she was last seen. Now, the focus of the investigation in Tasmania focused on the east coast of the state of Tassie, where she was last seen, and they conducted, I believe, I don't have it here, but from memory, the police did an incredible search. They searched so many areas and they interviewed hundreds of people. Now, the coroner's report brings up an interesting point um, about the night of night the 9th of March, 1993. And I'm just going to read it from the report so it doesn't get all muddled up. Quote, of concern to the investigation was Gronwalt's whereabouts on the night of Tuesday, the 9th of March, 1993. 
it is clearly established that she left the YHA hostel in Devonport earlier that day and that she spent the night the night of the 10th of March 1993 at Launceston. It is presumed that she rode her cycle from Devonport to Launceston. However, there are no confirmed sightings. All guest houses, etc. were checked, but no record of her being at any of them exists for that night. So that kind of brings up the concept that she may have met someone along the way um, and was staying with them and no one knew. Now, from St. Helens to Orford, um, this highway essentially follows the entire Tasmanian coastline and then it kind of turns inland at certain parts and gets quite remote before returning back to the coast. Um, So from St. Helens to the last known confirmed sighting of Nancy the highway goes through areas of the coast, these little towns. One of them is called Beaumaris, which is actually an area of Melbourne as well that I grew up near, um, and Scamander. Now, it is this kind of highway, um, highway essentially is the main area of access to these towns used by locals and tourists. Now, there are a number of side roads that come off these parts. Um, they become gravel roads and kind of like go into kind of semi-forested farming remote areas. Now, they've kind of narrowed down where Nancy was last seen and it is this area of Beaumaris and this area is very kind of remote. Um, It's unpopulated. It has a, I think, a population of about 300 people today Um, and it's known for its beach. Um, It's kind of very remote tranquil coastline um, and a large tidal area known as Henderson Lagoon. Now, after Nancy disappeared, her parents visited Tasmania so many times from Germany. It's such a long way looking for her. And basically, they really narrowed down into this tiny coastal town, Beaumaris. Now, Beaumaris has a four-kilometre stretch of beach, um, along it. Um, and inland of Beaumaris, there are pine plantations, forested areas, many gravel roads and probably a lot of places to dispose of someone if you were going to do that. Now, to this day, there are no suspects. There never have been. And Nancy's disappearance is open but cold. Now, through the coroner's inquest findings, where I got all of her final movements from, I came across the name Victoria Cafasso. Now, she does not come up on any searches I've done. I've never heard of her. She was an Italian woman who was visiting this same area, Beaumaris, this tiny town um, in Tasmania in 1995, two years after Nancy disappeared. Um, and she was found dead on Beaumaris Beach at Beaumaris, which many believe is one of the last places Nancy was. Now, Victoria and Elizabeth Cafasso, she was born on the it's either the 8th of June or the 6th of August because it's like back to front according to where you're from. Um, I believe because it's an Australian report, it'd be the 8th of June, 1975. She was Italian. Um, now, around 1.30pm on the 11th of October, 1995, so two years after Nancy disappeared in these same parts, Victoria's partially naked body was found pretty much being lapped by the waves at the water's edge on Beaumaris Beach. She had numerous stab wounds to her body. It was really brutal. It's detailed in actually Nancy's coroner's report together with bruising and lacerations. Now, she was on holiday in Tasmania and she was staying with relatives in Beaumaris. 
Now, Victoria was a university graduate from Italy um, who was very trusting of people, according to her family, which was kind of one of her downfalls. She wanted to go to Australia, like so many of you, and she travelled to Australia to stay with her cousin who was living in the town of Bomoris um, in Tasmania. Now, she stayed with her cousin during the days of the 6th of October, um, 1995, to the 11th of October. Now, she was last seen alive, and this was backed up by many witnesses. Uh, Most mornings, she went for a walk or she went down to sunbake on the beach. She was last seen alive sunbaking on Beaumaris Beach. This is a four-kilometer stretch of beach, very remote, um, which is kind of hidden, I think, by shrubbery from the highway. Um, She was last seen there. Um, on the morning of Wednesday, the 11th of October, 1995. Now, Tassie doesn't get very hot, so it couldn't have been very hot because that's that's spring at that time. And even in summer, it's one of the reasons why I think I should move there because it it's nowhere near as hot as the rest of Australia. Now, the state government, um, sorry, um, she was essentially found, you know, washed up on Beaumaris Beach and there were no suspects um, into what happened to her and no witnesses. Um, she was seen sunbaking last and then the next time she was found, she was pretty much stabbed and thrown into the water and she was washing up. Now, the reason that Nancy's case looks into this is obviously because both went miss, um, both, well, Victoria was killed in this tiny town. What's the likelihood of these two things happening in two years? Um, She was murdered there and Nancy went missing there. So obviously they're going to draw conclusions and kind of links between the two. So I just want to take you through the comparisons that um, they made between the case of the unsolved still case of Victoria Cafasso um, and the disappearance of Nancy Gronwald. Both victims were females aged in their 20s and tourists. Both had been in the state of Tasmania only a few days. Both spoke English, although Cafasso spoke more fluently than Grunwald. Both stayed on the east coast of Tasmania prior to their disappearance or murder. Both girls were of above average build, which I don't really, I don't know. I haven't like, I just, I don't know. I think back then they had a, because people were smaller, even 20 years ago, I think they had a different kind of, kind of, because they considered um, Anna Rosa Lever heavy and she's skinny as. So I think the 90s were just a kind of fucked up time. Both girls have been recognised as non-locals. The distance between the scene of the Cafasso murder and the last sightings of Gronwald is as little as 10 kilometres. Both were last seen in the late morning, early afternoon. Both both are described as sensible girls who would not taste, take risks. This indicates that if there is a connection between the cases, the offender does not immediately raise suspicions. It would appear a possibility that an attempt was made to dispose of Cafasso's body in the sea. It is possible that Gronwald's body, if she met with foul play, was disposed of in a similar manner but did not get washed up onto the shore. Which I find strange. I think she probably would. How far could you take her out before you had to stop? or get noticed. It's strange. Both were last seen alive early in the month, Cafasso on the 11th of October 1995 and Grunwald on the 12th of March 1993. Both were last seen on a weekday, Cafasso on a Wednesday and Grunwald on a Friday, possibly indicating that a similar offender is a shift worker or unemployed or works odd days and or hours. There is some evidence that both Cafasso and Grunwald enjoyed the beaches of the east coast of Tasmania, 
A witness states that he saw Grunwald reading a book on the beach at Beaumaris and that is corroborated by another witness. The location they saw Grunwald is less than one kilometre from where Cafasso was located. So essentially they were drawing conclu- like kind of similarities between the cases and you can't deny that in this small area where nothing really happens, a sleepy little coastal town, you can't deny that this is crazy that these two things happen. Now the coroner pretty much broke it down into three different theories of what happened to Nancy. That she was hit by a car and disposed of, um, which is a pretty heavily kind of theorised thing by a lot of people. She was riding her bike and that potentially she was hit on this coastal highway, which kind of meanders in and out. So maybe on like a blind curve or something. The next theory is that she met with foul play. And the next one they list as death at mis- as mis- sorry, death by misadventure. So essentially she went out walking somewhere, got lost and was never found, fell down a mine shaft, things like that. But he was able to confirm and kind of sum up what he believes happened. And in Australia, coronial inquests, when you've got nothing else to go on, are very heavily relied on. Um, they kind of influence the rest of the law and that's how people investigate things moving forward. And the coroner actually has the ability to reopen cases and things like that. They're highly um, intelligent, educated people. His summary at the end of the coroner's report um, that I read about Nancy reads the following. Quote, that Nancy, so essentially he's saying that he breaks down why he believes she is dead and what happened to her and what he can confirm. Quote, that Nancy Grunwald is deceased, that she died whilst in Tasmania, that she died on or about Friday the 12th of March 1993, that she died between St Helens and Bicheno or Bicheno. I believe that foul play is involved in her disappearance in the form of homicide I find that Nancy Grunwald died on the east coast of Tasmania between St Helens and Pacino on the 12th of March 1993 as the result of foul play by persons unknown. I express my sincere condolences to her parents, family and friends. This matter is now concluded. Signed, Peter Henrik Wilson, coroner. Um, And that was from the um, Magistrates Court, which is in, I believe... Launceston um, in the state of Tasmania and that coroner's report is dated the 19th of March 2004 so pretty much nine years after Nancy disappeared. Now I thought that would be it because they kind of wrapped it up um, and said it's open but cold but then when I googled Nancy's name I found an article from 2019 which I thought was amazing and this article is essentially a interview with a detective sergeant, Bob Code, from, he worked for the Tasmanian police, and I believe he had worked intermittently on Nancy's disappearance. Um, And he's very familiar with the murder as well of Victoria Cafasso. Now, essentially in 2019, he came forward um, and he said that the links between the two cases and it being deliberate foul play was completely wrong. Um, And he essentially says he disagrees with the coroner's findings. So he says, quote, there's not one piece of evidence that ever came to fruition or came to the fore to link the two, unquote. He essentially um, puts forward a very compelling tale of what he thinks happened to Nancy Grunwald. Um, He believes that she was hit by a motorist by mistake and that those responsible dumped her body. 
I hear this time and time again, and these things actually happen. Just come forward and say it was an accident. And, you know, you're more than likely like just get a vehicular, you know, vehicular manslaughter charge in Australia. Um, These things happen, especially on curvy roads and, you know, cyclists aren't always doing the right things. It's so sad to just dispose of a body because you made a mistake and you don't want your life ruined but in the process, you're ruining so many other people's lives. So this detective code, he said, quote, between Miss Gronwald disappearing, but before a missing persons report had been made, he said that someone called a solicitor in Hobart, which is the capital of Tasmania. Um, This may like blow you away. Um, So I'm going to read you what he said happened on that phone call. Quote, it was a male caller, terribly upset and distraught. He was pleading and wanted urgent help because he'd been involved in a terrible accident on the East Coast. He pleaded over and over that he needed to talk to somebody and wanted advice. My thoughts are, come the next day, there's nothing in the papers about accidents or missing persons. So the person scooted back over to the mainland, unquote. So by the mainland, he means the rest of Australia. Tasmania's broken off. He's essentially saying that someone contacted a solicitor. Um, He reckons it falls, basically. Um, He reckons it falls like the day after, I think, Nancy was last seen alive. Um, He thinks that this person, which has been confirmed the call happened, the solicitor has been spoken to, this person essentially called up and essentially implied that they had hit someone um, on the east coast of Tasmania and needed help. And then this guy, not that he says it, but he clearly got rid of the body um, or moved it somewhere. And then this Bob Code is saying that the guy the next day when no one was reported missing um, and he didn't know it was a German backpacker and it would take a while to be reported missing um, and that nothing was in the papers, this guy kind of pissed off back to the mainland of Australia um, and kind of fled. Now, this Bob Code believes that this is absolutely the case and that this person is on the mainland of Australia um, and they need an incentive to come forward. And he, this article with the examiner, this interview talks about different types of indemnity. indemnity. He believes that this person needs conditional indemnity to be able to come forward because there's no incentive for them otherwise. Um, if they allow conditional indemnity, um, which essentially says that the time that's passed won't kind of um, get in the way of a trial um, or this person getting a fair shake in the legal system um, and that they'll be able to say what happened and be kind of understood that it was an accident. Um, he thinks that's the only way to kind of weed this person out. But if if you know anything about this or you want to throw this person under the bus because fuck them, I'm sure the last 30 years have been nice for them. Maybe they're wrecked by guilt. I doubt it. Um, there is a reward for $30,000 in the state of Tasmania um, for information leading to what happened to Nancy. Um, and I actually believe that this is exactly what happened to her. Um, and she is one of the few from this episode where I absolutely think that's what happened. I actually don't... That phone call really kind of um, solidified it for me, but I do, I do still kind of say that the likelihood of two murders in one tiny coastal town, it's like the plot of Midsummer Murders because stuff like that never happens um, in Tassie, let alone in a tiny village of 300 people. So if you live in Beaumaris in Tasmania and you know anything about this, 
hey, throw someone under the bus because we're all fucked like financially with COVID. So you could have $30,000 in your pocket. That's conditional on the fact that you're not an asshole, you're not lying, um, and you actually come up with the goods. So that's it for this episode. Um, I've covered four cases um, and I just want to give you the information on who to contact if you know anything about the disappearance of any of these people. So Barbara Brown, she was the American backpacker that went missing between Sydney and Queensland. If you know anything about her, you can contact New South Wales Police on 02 9689 7388 Naoko Ondo. Ondo. If you know anything about her disappearance um, in either New South Wales or Queensland, um, please also contact New South Wales Police. You can contact them on 02-9689-7388. You can probably also contact Crime Stoppers on the following numbers, which you can also contact if you know anything about Anna Rosa Lever's disappearance in Cuba PD, Nancy Grunwaltz in um, Tasmania, or Victoria's murder also in Beaumaris in Tasmania. You can call Crime Stoppers for pretty much all of the cases I've done. They're the one-stop shop to speak to and they handle all of these cold cases. The phone number for Crime Stoppers in Australia is 1-800-333-000. I want to say that again, 1-800-333-000. So there are many other obviously missing backpackers. I barely scraped the surface. I think there's tons of international ones I just haven't found. So if you know of any, please let me know. I want to give you a few names if you're interested. Um, Now, where kind of what Barbara and Naoko get embroiled in is this kind of Highway of Tears-esque area up in Outback Queensland. Um, And you can look it up. If you look up the name Tony Jones, you will go down a rabbit hole. Now, um, Tony Jones is an Australian. He was um, on a trip with his brother. Um, just from memory. Um, his case fascinates me and I still think that they're going to make headway decades later. Um, it's really come up in the public consciousness and being reported on a lot since then. Um, he essentially did not meet his brother at the next stop. One was driving, one was biking um, and he's never been seen again. Um, there is a two girls um, Well, there was two backpacking girls from Melbourne who went missing up that way. One was found. One is still missing. If you Google Anita Cunningham, um, you will find that. Then again, Australia is so huge that half of these go, they they stretch right up to far north Queensland, these disappearances um, and some very remote remote inland areas. You can also look up the disappearance of Kim Tia, T-W-E-R. I wish I could cover them, but I really do want to stick to what my podcast is for um, and why I started it to cover the stories of these people who have gone missing somewhere where they're not from. And I think this episode really demonstrates why this is important because I've never heard of any of these people. No one is looking for them here. It It's tragic. And as much as it sucks and I, as much as I think that if you're not a piece of shit, you don't need a monetary incentive to throw someone under the bus, it's not even throwing them under the bus. It's making them accountable for their actions if you know anything, if you need that monetary thing, fine. We all need money. We all need money to survive. If that's what pushes you over the line and gives police the evidence they need to bring someone to justice, that's amazing because these people were daughters. They were sisters. Um, 
they were young women out exploring and doing what so many of us have done, um, I myself included, and luckily have never, you know, come into contact with anyone who this happened to and it's not happened to me. But being losing your child on the other side of the world is painful and I think anyone who's a mother or a parent can relate to that that whatever happened to them, you can't be there all the time to look for them and that they're somewhere cold or, you know, um, they're alone. So I hope that you've enjoyed how I've presented this episode. It will be once in a while that I'll do one like this because there really wasn't enough information for any of them, um, Barbara and Aoko, Nancy, Anna, um, and any of the other murdered women I covered on this episode to really have one episode for them. So I really wanted to kind of put them together so they have a home together um, and it will hopefully promote some discussion. If you're in Australia, please share this episode. Um, if you live in the areas suggested, you never know what could come out of it, what someone someone could get older and develop a conscience. Um, you just don't know and that's why I'm covering this because they're not forgotten by their families as much as they're um, forgotten by the media Um and so, yeah. So, um, follow Unknown Passage on Instagram at Unknown Passage Pod. Um, I love it over there, interacting with you guys. Um, visit the website, which has an episode page for each person. I'll put one up for this one. Um, I'm titling it, titling it Australia's Missing Foreign Backpackers. If I put it Australia's Missing Backpackers, um, it would probably imply that they're Australian that went missing. Um, so I'll put that episode page up. Become a patron if you like the show and you can do it through the website. It links through there, which is unknownpassagepodcast.com or you can go straight to Patreon, search me on their Unknown Passage podcast. Um, if you like this show, if you get anything from it, please leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. That is so important to me. Um, I, don't, I can't tell you how to do it other than on Apple Podcasts, unfortunately. You'll have to look that up for your own podcast thing. But um, yeah, and I love reading like the reviews that you guys leave about what you like about it. Someone referred to my voice as soothing, which fuck, I've got to like send that um, feedback to a million different people because when I was growing up, um, I was told by my mother and my grandparents that I had a voice like a banshee um, or a hyena and I was a fishwife when I started yelling. I think I hit different kind of decibels when I start yelling and it goes to shit, but I'm glad that um, this has some sort of ASMR, AMSR, don't know, ASMR quality. Um, I like listening. It's very important. Um, it's not shallow to say that because I have gone off podcasts who have, um, I'm really sensitive to people's voices um, and I just stopped listening to one that I was so committed to for ages recently because um, one of the girl's voices, I just can't, I just can't anymore. There's a couple like that. Um, maybe you can guess a few of them. Um, I, it's just like, and also I've said it before, I was just talking to my friend about it and I'll say it again. I'm not into laughing about people's misfortune. So that's why um, I've kind of stopped subscribing to a lot of them, which is good for you because it means that I get to research more. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. I have a 
couple kind of organized. I won't have one out for a week after this. I meant to say I'm cutting back to about one episode a week, which is still what most podcasts do. Um, If I have more time, I'll do two, but I'm really trying. I need to focus a lot on getting my business back on track because COVID's really fucked it. Um, And a few other things that are going on. I just need time away from my phone. Um, But the next episode I'm going to do... um, takes us to Spain. So I put up the poll, which one did you want? You guys said Australia. So here it is. Um, the other option was Spain, which was a close second. So you guys will get that, um, in about a week's time. Thank you so much. Keep interacting on Instagram. Send me an email at unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Say hey, um, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks guys. Bye.